Was it good? Was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater, too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On Backstage Babble. Hi, this is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. And today, I am so happy to present my episode with veteran actor Richard Topol. Richard Topol is currently starring in Our Class, a haunting, timely story about a 1941 pogrom in a Polish village, which is now playing at the Brooklyn Academy of Music through February 4th. His other roles include the Broadway productions of Indecent, Julius Caesar, The Merchant of Venice, The Normal Heart, Fish in the Dark, Cymbeline, Awake and Sing, and The School for Scandal. He's also appeared off-Broadway in Prayer for the French Republic, Just Say No, The Dance of Death, The Winter's Tale, Bronx Bombers, and more. And now, without further ado, here's Richard Topol. All right, so... I'd love to start by asking you, how did you first become interested in performing? And Wow. Okay. Um, <laughs> that, you know, I guess I first got interested. I mean, like, I'm not one of those people who, oh, I knew I wanted to be an actor when I was 10 or 12 or even 15. I did, um, I guess, the first show that where I was like, oh, this is really fun. I was in middle school. And uh, the English teacher um, had us do a, we did a production of, of Macbeth, of the Scottish play. And in my town, there's actually a small um, professional theater. And we got to do the performances of the show in that theater. And I played the drunken porter short scene one short scene really fun really funny and i like you know was climbing down from the sot from the rat from the um i was climbing down this wall onto the stage and it was really fun and, and i was pretending to be drunk and i was i don't know 12 11 12 years old and and i got a lot of laughs and i was like oh that was really fun um and so i ended because of that i started doing plays and musicals in high school regularly but really i blame my college girlfriend who is a professional actor, who is one of those people who knew that she was going to be an actor from, you know, from the get-go. And I fell in love with her and I was doing plays, but I was also doing other things. Like I, I, I imagine myself being a lawyer or working for the government, doing things like that. But I fell in love with her and she was already in love with acting. And I was like, oh yeah, that's, I'll do that too. <laughs> and then I started doing it more and having a great time. And, and so when I graduated, I majored in political science at, in college at Brown University. And I did a lot of shows, but I thought, oh, um, I, this is, I really love doing this. And I was raised by parents who were like, find the thing you love and do that. And so then I thought, okay, I'll try to do that, but I should get myself trained because I don't really know what I'm doing. I'm just acting on uh, instinct. Uh, and so then I went to, uh, you know, I got my master's in acting and that, and that, and that was 40 years ago. And I've been trapped ever since. <laughs> and how did you end up moving to New York? And uh, I got accepted into NYU's prestigious 
uh, graduate acting program that was at the time run by Zelda Fitzchandler, who had founded the Arena Stage. And so I came to New York to study and then I graduated and I stayed. I mean, I thought about going to other places. I thought about going to Los Angeles like actors at the time did more than they do now, I think. And I also thought about moving to Seattle, which at the time was the sort of a new Oz of the world, a combination grunge city and sort of magical uh, Oz. And, but I couldn't uh, convince uh, and either of my two best buddies who we talked about possibly moving there to move there. So I stayed in and I've been in ever since for 36 years now. And what was the process like early on of figuring out sort of what type of parts appealed to you or even what type of plays you? Um, I don't sing well. So that sort of basically like deleted <laughs> all of the possibilities of being in musicals and things like that. Um, and and I really at the time at the time, you know, there was a there were a lot of theater companies all across the nation at regional theaters where there were companies of actors. And I I went to college in Providence, Rhode Island, and there was a great theater company, Trinity Rep there. And during my time at Brown, I saw at least a dozen shows and I saw these actors play this part one, you know, like Trinculo one time and then Lear the next time. And, and I thought, oh, that's amazing. I want to do that. And Zelda, who ran NYU, came from that background and had a company at at uh, arena stage and so i imagined that my life was going to be in a theater company where i'd get to do some classics and some new plays um and so that's how, sort of how i imagined it would happen of course it didn't happen like that at all and, and sort of at the beginning of my career was the beginning of the dismantling of a lot of theater companies across the the nation um and so it was really just a matter of like oh well what job are people going to offer me oh i'll do that because I want to work. I mean, I was, when I got out of acting school, I was 24, but the first role I played, I was a 15 year old. And um, I did play a lot of younger parts. And I, you know, I, I was, uh, I was never the leading man or even the young leading man. You know, I was always either the, the quirky friend or the, the slightly oddball um, character. But uh it's, uh, sorry, I was just thinking about, you know, my first job out of school was at the Long Wharf Theater with some great actresses, including one who just passed recently, Frances Sternhagen. Mm -hmm. And Franny was in that show and Kathleen Chalfont uh, was in that show and Sloane Shelton was in that show. And um, I was really, uh, it was the beginning of a long line of getting to be in shows with really great actors and actresses who I learned a lot from. But so in terms of trying to figure out what kinds of things I wanted to do versus what I could do, uh, I think I think I was mostly like, OK, well, I get to do this, so that'll be fun. You know, does that does that not really answer your question or? <laughs> no, it does. It does. And a play you did with Kathleen Chalfant early on was Just Say No by Larry Kramer. And yep. how did that first happen? Well, it first happened because we had done the show at the Long Wharf and it was directed by David S. Bjornsson, um, a great director who I have had the opportunity to work with a few times. And we had done that the year before. And so then Just Say No was happening and it was Larry's, I mean, it was, you know, I, I, I've gotten to do two of Larry's plays. I got to do The Normal Heart on Broadway later in the revival, but this was earlier and I got to be in Just Say No. And it was really Larry's like angry screed at 
uh, at Koch, but also at Reagan for how they were dealing or actually not dealing with the AIDS crisis. But it, it was, um, they, I think David took over the directing of the show halfway through the casting process and they were scrambling to cast the role of, Kathy played uh, Ron, uh, Nancy Reagan, Kathy played Nancy Reagan, and they were looking to cast Ron Reagan Jr., her son. And I had just played her son that, you know, the prior year at the Long Wharf. And so I think David thought of me and they brought me in and I was like, yeah, this, you know, this would be a crazy way to make my New York off-Broadway debut. And it was really crazy. I mean, it was really, uh, people either loved it or they hated it. It was a, it was a fabulous, angry, screed sort of slash vaudeville. Um, actually, it wasn't really vaudeville. It was more, bur it was really a sort of burlesque. Uh, and... But again, with a fabulous group of great actors, Kathy and David Margulies and Julie White and Tanya Pinkins and Keith Redine, who's a fabulous playwright, who I wish his plays would get produced more. Um, and so again, it was this great opportunity. To, and Richard Reilly, there were, there were just, just an endless uh, array of fabulous actors to work and were there any worries about taking on what must have been kind of a controversial and not so talked about subject matter at the time? Um, I was too innocent and naive to know any better. <laughs> I mean, you know, there was a, a theater week, which I don't, I don't, does theater week, is theater week still around? I don't, think, I don't think so. Yeah. But at the time, you know, there was a photo, the cover photo of theater week for the week that we opened was me as Ron Reagan Jr. in his dance belt with a pink triangle covering my my genitals and I don't think I really uh um had any idea um what I was getting into when I got into it I just thought oh I love these people oh this is a crazy interesting play. it was the first of I think a number of experiences in my life where I'm like oh this is a crazy interesting play I don't know how it works or if it works but it looks like it could be fun. So I'll go for it, which was sort of exactly the experience I had with Indecent, you know, 25 years later. But um, yeah, so I didn't, I had no idea what I was getting into. And I mean, it was, you know, it ended up being, Just Say No was a real sort of rallying cry for the gay community in, in New York City at the time. I think we were beloved by, you know, we did it at the WPA in, uh, Chelsea, and we were beloved by the immediate community. The Chelsea and West Village gay community was angry and needed it needed somebody to 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 channel its voice. And I think that's what Larry was trying to do. Yeah. And you worked with a lot of great directors early on, like David S. Bjornsson and Gerald Gutierrez, and a lot of others. And what do you think makes a great director for your specific style? Uh, the the greatest directors that I've gotten to work with, had the privilege to work with, know when to say something and when not to say something. And I mean, some of them are are former actors or even like in Dan Sullivan's case, a former stage manager who understands the process, the journey, and is in tune enough to each individual actor's uh formation of a character to know when to just drop in a little uh, um, tidbit when to like seeing their fork in the road and saying oh actually just go left here instead of right and I think down the road 
if you go left, we'll find what we're looking for. Um, and and also direct like directors who have a really great radar just pick up everything and and then decide when to intervene. Um, you know, and then I mean, like, I don't know. I mean, Rebecca Teichman did a brilliant job with Indecent, and that was a different kind of directing. That was like, uh, let's try this. No, let's try this. No, let's try this. No, let's try this. Oh, let's take, you know, num the first try from this scene, the fourth try from this scene, you know. So that was a that's a whole other way of um of making a thing happen that that ended up with brilliant results. Yes. And your Broadway debut came in School for Scandal. And what was it like to be making your debut with that and with Tony Randall? And the School for Scandal with Tony Randall. He, <laughs> it, it even rhymes. Um uh it was great. I mean, I had uh um dreamed of being on Broadway from when I think, I think it was, I started dreaming about being on Broadway after I seen uh, Christopher Plummer and James Earl Jones and Diane Wiest in Othello on Broadway. And I thought, oh, this is, I want to be in a room like this, you know, helping blow a thousand people's minds. And so I had to wait a little while. Um, it took a little while. It took longer than I wanted actually, to, whatever, to, to make my Broadway debut. And I had a teeny part, uh, um in a production that jerry uh, friedman was remounting that had the acting company had done years before and um it was the lyceum is where we performed it was such a such a beautiful theater and so old and you felt like the ghosts of so many great performances were in there and it just was really exciting and it was really disappointing it was not a very good production and we closed early and uh but i was just so so happy to be uh, in in a building like that. And what do you think are the sort of benefits or challenges of having kind of a rep company like that on Broadway? Um, you know, it was really great what Tony did. Um, he really did, because at the time, I mean, now it's like there's a battle for <laughs> for Broadway uh, houses. But at the time, there were a lot of dark houses, a lot of empty houses for a long time, especially the ones east of Broadway. You know, the Lyceum, the Belasco, the Court, which is now the James Earl Jones, were theaters that were empty most of the time. And he found a way to say, well, let's put some plays on. Uh, we got to cut a deal. With a key, you know, he, he was instrumental, I guess, in cutting a deal both with the unions and with the theater owners to make it affordable to produce plays that wouldn't otherwise be on Broadway. And there were at a time, at the time there were a dearth of plays on Broadway and, um, you know, he found some magical special sauce. And uh, I think originally he had hoped that it would, that he could find a company of actors that would be, that would do a, you know, like, like, the you know Zelda's company at Arena Stage or any you know company at Seattle Dan's company at Seattle Rep and I think he was hoping to be able to get people to commit to doing a couple Broadway shows a year and I think that was just challenging I mean it was challenging partly because they weren't paying enough money to make it affordable for actors to commit to that kind of work uh, in a city that's way more expensive than other cities where there were repertory companies so that that 
that I think ended up being one of the downfalls of the of the the setup that he made. If that makes any sense. And you mentioned the School for Scandal not being a very good production. And do you <laughs> find that you can often tell about how well a show will do or be received as you're working on it? Sometimes, sometimes you're like, uh, I mean, sometimes you're like, yeah, this isn't, I've been in better shows. And sometimes you're like, I don't know, will it, you know, will it work out? And then sometimes it does work out and sometimes it doesn't. And then sometimes you think, I don't, um, and then an audience will show up and they'll, they'll make it magical in a way that you didn't think it could be. So it's, it's hard to know. I mean, I, I'll just go back to Indecent again. I mean, I remember reading the script going like, I don't know how this play works. I don't, I can't follow it, but I love this character. And then the, by the time we were on Broadway with it, it was so magical. It's like, oh, of course it worked this way, but only because we had put in months and months of of painstaking, fine-tuning work of both David Dorfman as the choreographer and Lisa Gutkin as the creator of the, you know, the, the, the musical score and Rebecca and Paula working together on the script and Rebecca leading the way as a sort of this visionary director. Um, but I wouldn't have ever, I, I wouldn't have guessed that that's how it would have turned out. Right. So, you know, sometimes you, you just you have no idea and you just have to take a leap of faith and say i think i believe in these artists and there's something inside this story that will or won't become interesting or important to have to hear and do you generally like to make suggestions in the rehearsal room to a playwright or director um, I, as I have gotten older and slightly wiser and slightly more experienced, I definitely tend to speak up more. I think when I was younger, I thought I, I'll just do, I'll do what you've written. I'll try to make it work. Uh, you know, I'll, I'll get, I'll throw every idea that I have out there to try to make this work. And I'll wait and, for people to tell me, yeah, that works. That doesn't work. Um, and now I think I do, uh, I, I'm, I'm less trepidatious to say to you know uh josh Harmon or paula vogel um i don't explain to me what what you're trying to do here because it's not clear or i think that this is is not i can't figure out a way to make your intention come alive when it's like this if it's like this that makes more sense to me what do you think about that so yeah i'm a little more willing to be a uh, an active collaborator as opposed to a responsive collaborator if that makes any sense yes it does, it does. and you've done i know three shakespeare plays on broadway and more in the park and off broadway and do you think that the kind of language of shakespeare and rhythm of it comes to you naturally or no <laughs> oh, definitely not no <laughs> That was an uphill climb. That was really, I mean, uh, Barry Edelstein, who's a great friend and a, and a fabulous dramaturg and a great director and a, and a Shakespeare scholar, a real sort of master of the Shakespeare, um, was actually somebody who's instrumental in helping me become a better Shakespearean actor. I couldn't, for the life of me, uh, figure out how to hold those thoughts in my head and make them come out in a way that made sense for the longest time. It was really, it was a lot of failure before success. 
uh, for me. And um, so, so no, it was, it, you know, and, and now I feel like I can open almost any Shakespeare play and see the, the thought structure and the, and, and hear the music and feel the journey in a way that I can make come alive. And I, I think it was just, it was a lot of hard work, a lot of, I mean, I actually also, uh, Michael Miller, who was the, um, the Dean of the graduate acting program at NYU when I was there, uh, hooked me up with, um, a Fox foundation fellowship one year where what I did was I studied Shakespeare. My, my fellowship was like, I got a grant to that funded a bunch of, uh, Shakespeare scholarship and research and exploration. And I was able to do a couple of productions. I was able to travel to London and to uh, Stratford-upon-Avon to see shows. I was able to take some classes and do some workshops. I, I organized uh, um, a Shakespeare masterclass that Brian Murray taught and, and, and got some great uh, actor friends to be involved like Paul Giamatti and Dennis O'Hare. And, um, and so I learned from in that year, it was really the year where I made a firm commitment to, to try to master this thing that I was not mastering. And I tried to surround myself with people who were in my eyes, masters or skillful or um, experts in a way that I would, I was hoping it would rub off on me and it did rub off a little bit on me. And then I got more and more chances and every chance I got, I mean, you know, in the, the roles that I got to play in the Broadway productions of Shakespeare, I mean, I did not get, I, I was not playing a big part in Julius Caesar with Denzel and I was not playing a big part in the Merchant of Venice with Pacino, but I was in the room for and and Dan Sullivan directed both of those shows, and there were some great actors um, in both of those shows. Uh, you know, Calm Fior played uh, Cassius in a way that uh, I've always wanted to play Cassius, and I got to play Cassius later that year at a at a theater outside of New York. But I, you know, I just watched him for weeks and weeks and weeks, and and every choice he made and every every way he found to to use the language and I just soaked it up. And you did understudy Al Pacino in The Merchant of Venice and did you get to go on or what was the problem? <laughs> <laughs> um, I almost got to go on one time. Uh, it was a pleasure playing Tubal to his Shylock and it was a pleasure uh, you know, I, I know that I'm going to get to play Shylock someday. And so I thought, okay, great. It'll be a great opportunity to learn the part and make some choices and sort of bounce my choices off of what I'm seeing Al work out with Dan Sullivan. But there was one performance where um, uh, Steve Kaus, the stage manager, came into the dressing room just before half hour and said, hey, listen, um, Al is stuck in his car on the George Washington Bridge, a tractor trailer jackknifed. And we don't know if he's going to make it. So just get ready. And I was, you know, I was like, okay, uh, you know, I had rehearsed. I knew that I could do it. I knew that I could do my version, but I also knew there were like 1100 people in the audience who paid top dollar to see Al Pacino. And so I thought, oh, this is going to be, this is going to be scary. And I got ready and, um, and uh, about 20 minutes later, Steve came back in the dressing room. He said, it's all right. You know, uh, the car uh, turned around on the George Washington Bridge. It's ra racing down to the Lincoln Tunnel. Uh, we're going to hold the curtain for Al. And uh -huh. we held the curtain for, I think, almost 45 minutes. 
you know, we we didn't start an eight o'clock show till eight forty five, and it was a long play. But <laughs> they knew that um, they knew that the people there were were uh, there to see Big Al and not me. And so I did not ever get to go on, but uh, that's as close as I got to go on. Yeah. Yeah. And what is your opinion on kind of revised productions of Shakespeare? Do you prefer the more kind of purist approach or? Um, I love a Shakespeare play, a Shakespeare production that makes the story clear, accessible and interesting to an audience. So if that means that it's, uh, you know, in its original form is great. If it means that like what uh, Dan Sullivan did with uh, that production of Julius Caesar, he sort of set it in kind of like a Bosnia war zone. Um, and if that helps make the story accessible and uh, exciting, then I'm all for it. I mean, if it's if it's an idea that you're kind of trying to bending and crushing the play to fit, I'm not a fan of that. But if it's an idea that's been really well thought through, and 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 you know Barry Edelstein, I'll just mention his name again because I think in the productions that I've been in that he's either directed or dramaturg or done the cutting of, um, he helped find those plays find. Uh, a setting that wasn't the original, you know, wasn't, you know, it wasn't an originalist uh, kind of production, um, but he helped those productions find settings and ways, prisms through which you can tell the story that made it come alive more than made it about some idea. Um, and what do you like specifically about doing Shakespeare in the park and having that original kind of outside format? God, it's such a great place to do Shakespeare. It's just so great. I mean, the, the, the feeling in the park, the feeling of the thousands of people who are getting to see the shows for free, that sense of like, oh, it's a, it's a party. It's a, it's a festival. Um, it, it's just, it's, it can't be beat. It can't be beat. Um, and, you know, I'm trying to think I've done other Shakespeare productions in other places outdoors. And there's just always something magical about the changing of the light and the sounds of the world that, um, that are, are, they're just so much fun, but in the city, I mean, because it's that, you know, there's a combination of the, in the, in the city of an audience that's, one like oh i've never seen a shakespeare play i get to see the show cuz cuz i can get access to it cuz it's for free and then people who are real uh, knowledgeable citizens of the of shakespeare and and um that kind of mashup of an audience also makes it uh a sort of an exciting exciting um audience to perform in front of and what is it like to work with sometimes stars who might not have done Shakespeare before and sort of watching them navigate their way through that? And Well, I will say that one, I mean, you know, I think about uh, Denzel Washington doing that production of Julius Caesar and he had not been on stage for, I think a couple of decades. And he, you know, he had done plays before he became a movie star. And, uh, and, but, 
the commitment that he made to, I mean, he knew that everybody who was going to be sitting at the Belasco Theater was going to be coming to see the show because of him. And to his credit, every night after the show, he would say, we'd go next door to Cafe Antoine, have a drink. And an hour later, when we're coming out after our drinks, he'd still be out there signing playbills, right? He's basically every person who had a playbill who came to the show, he would stand outside afterwards and talk to them and sign their playbills. And, and he really knew that the the burden of carrying the show and carrying the production on on his shoulders you know was it was his burden and he knew that most of the people in the audience had never seen a shakespeare play before so the, it was um so something about the way that he appreciated that made me appreciate him take you know taking on taking on the role um you know I, I don't think he would look back and say oh that was my finest uh play play that I performed and I mean I've seen him do plays on Broadway since then and and he's been you know fabulous he was fabulous in Raising the Sun and you know, I, I didn't get to see Fences but I'm sure he killed it um uh and so you know on the one hand, there's some people who, like when we did the shows in the park, there's some people who were who were TV stars, who were cast because they were TV stars. And people would come to see uh, The Winter's Tale, not because they were interested in The Winter's Tale, but because they want to see this their favorite TV actor. And some of them were sort of actually could bring the their skill set from doing sitcoms uh, and make a, a, a clown character in a Shakespeare play come alive in a way that I, that that a Shakespearean actor would never be able to do mm -hmm. and and make it understandable and accessible to uh, uh, our contemporary audience in a way that a Shakespeare, most Shakespeare actors in this country would just never be able to do. And so seeing that done a few times, I'm like, oh, wow, yeah, you don't need to have done Shakespeare to know how to, you know, make magic out of this uh, out of these plays that we're still performing hundreds of years later because there's something in them that's that speaks to everybody over the generations and when you're working on a show that is a revival whether it's shakespeare or larry kramer or anyone else do you like to revisit previous productions or do research into that or do you try to avoid that um most of the time I try to avoid it. Uh, I did a production of Dance of Death at Classic Stage Company a few years ago, right before the pandemic. And um, I hadn't done a Strindberg play since I was in college. And um, and it was, it was a challenging role. And I thought, I, I'm, I don't know how this works. I'm not sure how it works. I have an idea of what I could do, but I'm not sure how it works. And Victoria Clark was the director. And I trusted her implicitly and I was excited to try to figure out how it could work but I was nervous enough that I thought you know what let me read some reviews of previous productions let me read some things that have been written about it to to understand to try to understand it better and and in some ways that was helpful right in some ways I thought oh okay this is the thing that through all these different productions over all these different decades in all these different countries doesn't work about the play um so that's good to know or at least that these critics said didn't work but they said it different critics said it about different productions so i thought okay well that's a pretty good sign that there's something 
there's some there's some problem here to solve and we didn't necessarily solve it in our production but at least it did um you know there were like flares sent up to like okay this is a danger zone um or this is this is a this is a question that you got to find a real a better answer to um and so sometimes that uh, i've done that but rarely most of the time i just want to be in the present with this one and figure out how this is gonna the, how we can tell this story now i mean i had seen you know the normal heart for instance i had i was in acting school at nyu and it was at the public and and uh, i saw that production a handful of times because it was so great and i just kept wanting to see it because it was inspiring and it made me go oh right this is why i want to be an actor and so I knew the play worked and I knew that it was uh, powerful and I knew um, I believed in it fully. And so then the only question was, well, how does it resonate 20 years, 20, 30 years later uh, to an audience that will, and we didn't know what the, who the audience was going to be, but it ended up being made up of in a good percentage were sort of the older gay, the older gay community that had lived through the AIDS crisis, and then a good percentage of the audience were uh, the younger gay community who didn't know anything really about AIDS except what they'd seen in the movies. And um, so it was interesting the way audiences responded to it, and I think they did differently than at the time when it was running, when it when there was still um, this kind of. The, the the daily heartbreak that the community was going through, especially the gay community or, around the loss of friends and family due to the HIV AIDS. And um, so I knew the play worked. I just didn't know whether it would be seen as a sort of um, a kind of, you know, a history play or whether it would be as vibrant and, and vital as it had been the first time around. And I mean, I, and for Shakespeare plays, there's no, I can't even imagine what, you know, how people responded in, in 1604. Right. And a related question would be, do you like to do kind of historical research if it is a play that's based on fact or set in a certain era or? You know, sometimes I do, sometimes I don't. Sometimes I just go, at, I don't need to, you know, sometimes if it's like a real, if it's a real person that I'm playing, sometimes I feel, I, I mean, I certainly feel like, oh, I have to respect that person's truth and try to find their truth through some research about them. But also part of me says, I need to find the way that I connect to this person and um, and how I can meet somewhere in the middle between who that person was in truth and who I am in, in relation to that person. Um, because almost always, in a play at least, there's fictionalization of events, of characters. And so I used to be a little bit more of a of uh, oh yeah, let me read this book about them and let me read this book about this time. And uh, I'm less so now. I'm sort of, I sort of want to feel what's happening in the room with me, with the other artists, with the, you know, in response to the playwright and the play. Right. Um, and 
another great play that you did a revival of was Awaken Sing. And what was it like to be working with Ben Gazzara at sort of the end of his career and Lauren Ambrose and Mark Ruffalo and all these great actors? It was great. It was great. It was, that was a great production of a great play. And Bart Shear did a great job directing it. And um, it was hard. We worked really hard to try to figure out. I think there was no template really. I mean, Odette's hadn't been done in in a big way in a lot for for a long time and I, I think trying to find exactly the right tone um for the piece was the biggest challenge um and uh and bart was relentless in his pursuit of exactly that and we were willing participants and ben gazar i mean you know there were so many great people on that show i mean um Ben Gazzara and Zoe Wanamaker and of course Mark and Lauren and I mean and the the late lovely uh, Ned Eisenberg um so it was just it was um it was a joy to be in the room everybody and even Ben you know he was like he knew I, I think he in some way he knew that this was going to be his last gasp on Broadway his last chance whether it was uh, you know or that you know that he weren't he wasn't going to get that many more chances and you could feel that in his commitment to the work and you know whereas like Pablo Schreiber I think that was Pablo's first Broadway show and there that same sense of like we we're, we have to figure out a way to make this um this thing soar and uh and Mark and Lauren both in their different ways are such serious actors. And by that, I mean, they're serious about the responsibility that they feel to make every moment as valuable as it is in the journey of, of, of the play over the course of the evening. And I think their, um, their commitment to that was infectious. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, I've mentioned almost everybody in the cast. I mean, Jonathan Hadari was also, it's just like, it was a great group of people. I've been around long enough to know that it's really hard to make a magical piece of theater. Even if you have a great script and a great director and a great cast. And I feel like that was one of those where everything, the stars aligned literally and figuratively and everybody brought their a game in a way that the, and the alchemy of of all of the different people participating and making it magical including the designers i mean the design of that show was fabulous um um was just we just got lucky we got lucky i mean we worked really hard but we got lucky that it that it found what i thought was a kind of uh, resonance that you know that, that when you go to see a play you want to experience you want to you want to be right. blown away and I, and I feel like you're probably too young to have seen that right but I you, yes yes I, yeah, I think yeah. but um I don't know if it's at Lincoln Center Performing Arts Library I think I think it is recorded um if you can find a way to to get permission yeah. to watch it it's uh it was great and another uh, great cast you worked with on a very different kind of play was on Fish in the Dark. And oh what was it like to be with Larry David in his stage debut? Well, so Larry, I mean, it was it was great. And it was great partly because 
it was such a Larry thing. And everybody in the room who, everybody who came in the same way that everybody who came to see uh, Julius Caesar with Denzel came to see Denzel. Everybody who came to see Fish in the Dark wanted to see Larry. They wanted their, they wanted to be in the same room as Larry David. But Larry, to his great credit, as a writer, he, you know, he would come in with new pages every day and be like, you know what, I don't know, I don't, I'm not sure about this. Please uh, be kind to me and let's try it out. And and I, I promise you, if uh, I'll rewrite it tonight, you know. So he was a really uh, a humble but incredibly hardworking and determined guy. He was really determined at watching that journey and seeing him crafting joke after joke after joke. And, you know, how uh, uh, a reference in the second act was a was a callback to something in the first act in just the right way to get the laugh. You know, he was definitely, he's definitely a guy who is in the hunt for the laugh. But in in a beautiful way, not in a not in a cheapo way, but in his in his particular way, and um, it was really fun to be in that room trying to figure out how you know it was it was it was you knew we knew we'd found something when everybody else in the room was laughing, so that was a sure that was a good sign, and you knew like when you were doing something and Larry was opposite you and he started cracking up, you knew like okay great I'm in the I, I'm in the right zone. Um, and, uh, so it was a fun room, but it was hard. It was really, it was a hard thing to figure out because Larry's not a playwright. And so, you know, I, I think, um, it was a, it was a journey to get to the place where the play was, wasn't just a two hour version of a 20 minute curb episode or, or, you know, a, a 20 minute, 23 minute Seinfeld episode. Um, it was it, I think it, that was the biggest challenge like oh right how do I stack up a story and a bunch of characters and a bunch of jokes that will hold the audience's attention and interest for two hours and two acts um, and, but it was fun yeah and what was it like then to have Jason Alexander coming in in the main role? And did you find that that kind of changed the dynamic? Or yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, the show would start the the right before the first scene of the show. Uh, I'd be standing off stage right with Larry and Ben Shankman, and Larry, you know, two months, three months into the run, was like. Ugh. I can't do the same exact thing every show. I can't, I just can't do this. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm getting tired of this. I can't do it. You know? And that was his biggest challenge. It was like, Oh, right. We've done it. You know, the block is going to be the same. The lines are going to be the same. You can't just improv off a thing. And um, so I think that was a challenge for him in the way that when Jason stepped in, that was like, he knew how to do that. He knew how to make it make the same thing be full of new life every performance because he's a he's you know he's a theater actor that's that was his that was his um you know that's how he came to 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 have a the great career that he's had and so it was it was fun i mean it was completely different because the vibe i mean jason's vibe is is distinctly different from larry's vibe even if they're both sort of sort of menchy schlubby <laughs> jew guys um, but also the audience had a different expectation. Um, and some of the laughs were 
came in different places and 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 uh, Jason was able to find different laughs than Larry and uh so it was fun because we had done the show for months and then Jason stepped in for a couple months and uh I think everybody was really at least excited about how we could find new things because it is right. it's one of the hardest things to do is to especially especially for a comedy I think is to keep it alive so that you're not just okay and I do this thing with my right hand and that gets the laugh and I pull the pen out now um you know to 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 help all of the actors be honest about their comedy and we've um, talked a little bit about indecent already but i'd be curious to ask more about the process of sort of developing it on the road to broadway and then you've done it since broadway and other places and what has it been like having that kind of long journey with that show oh it's been it was great it was great it was really i mean it was four four plus years of my life that i will always cherish it was a really hard thing to figure out how to make as i said you know like when i read when my agent sent me the script and i read it and i thought i don't un i can't follow it i don't see how this works as a play i love this character i totally understand him i see his journey i know i can do it and i know i can bring myself fully to it in a way that i was very excited to do which is why i accepted the job but i did not know or have a great amount of faith in how the whole story would be told in a way that would be that an audience would get excited about as excited as they did get and we had the great privilege which you usually don't get of having four different rehearsal processes i mean we had we had about 15 weeks of rehearsal before we were on broadway right we did it first at yale and we had about five weeks of rehearsal there and it was a co-production with la jolla and so we did it, we ran it for a few weeks at Yale and found out some things about what worked, what didn't work. Oh, this scene shouldn't even be in the play. Oh, we need something else here. Oh, let's put this, you know, oh, the, we have to end it differently. You know, there were so many, it was like a Rubik's cube and, and uh, Paula and Rebecca kept sort of twisting the Rubik's cube around and like, oh, great. We have the whole yellow side and the blue side, but the, the red side is a mess. Um, and um, so then we had a few weeks of rehearsal at La Jolla and a few weeks of performance there. And then we had a bunch of months off um, for, for everybody to think about the play. And then we came back and we had almost five weeks at the Vineyard and uh, you know a nice couple months run there and then six months off or so. And then a few weeks of rehearsal before we put it up on Broadway. So I've never, and so in a way the development was a bit like, um, a musical uh and I, i'm not, as i said earlier you know i'm not really a musical theater guy but the kind of uh development and opportunity to try things and change things and then revisit that happens i think in the development of most successful musicals at least was what we got for this play and it helped everybody figure out how to tell the story in the most powerful and, and beautiful and truthful way and I mean of course also the play kept changing because the times we lived in kept changing and we started the play and you know 
we lived in a world that was where Barack Obama was the president. And uh, and then by the time we were doing it uh, on Broadway, Donald Trump and his um, sort of hate-filled, divisive, anti-immigrant uh, leadership was was spreading the kind of divisiveness that we feel more vividly in the country now. And that changed the way we did the play and it changed the, the way, you know, Paula rewrote some things that spoke more clearly to the anti-immigrant part of the story uh, in Indecent to, to in response to the, to the world we started living in then that I think we're still living in now. Um, so, uh, it was really nice too to, to have, to live with a character that long and, and not just straight, you know, so it wasn't like we were just doing a four year run of a play where, you know, we had time away and time to revisit and time to look at it, uh, uh, with a, some kind of perspective. And I thought that was really helpful in you know, because you, you almost always walk away from a play, at least, because they don't last that long. You almost always walk away and afterwards you're like, oh, gosh, that's the thing that was missing. Um, at least that's my experience. I mean, there's some people are, who are better actors who like find those things during the rehearsal process or during the performance process, uh, you know, more 95% of the things that they end up finding. Um, and I often we'll find a thing or two afterwards going like, oh, right, why didn't I do that? Or that's that's the missing uh, ingredient. And so it was nice to be able to come back and be like, I'm gonna try to put that in and let's see what happens when I put that into the sauce. Yeah. And a play I know you were working on really right before the pandemic was Anatomy of a Suicide off Broadway. And what was it like kind of seeing that through to the days when theater was shutting down? Um, well, that was a really intense show, too. I mean, that was a hard show to do, actually, night after night, eight shows a week, because it was about a family who had some sort of some thread of suicide down through the generations. Um, and uh, in a way, that's almost even, for me, more unfathomable than stories that I've told a number, you know, in a number of different plays about uh, the Holocaust and about, so, so somehow I have a, I have, I have less of an, I have less of an understanding, um, even though they're both sort of ununderstandable really in the end. Um, and, and it made telling a story about suicide um, really challenging. Um, and it was weird as I'm sure everybody would say to you who was doing a show during that time, to be going from, okay, what's going on out in the world? Oh, wait, are we supposed to? So I'll just put hand sanitizer on my hands before I go on stage. And then when I come backstage, I'll put hand sanitizer on my hands and, you know, until the next scene. Um, is that is that what we're supposed to do? And then, you know, one of our backstage crew was sick um during the last week of the run and we're like is that or do they have this virus and we, i don't think we were wearing masks at the time and um 
and so it was it was it was weird and creepy to be in a room where you didn't know you know you're sitting with a, a people in the audience and you're you don't know like wait are, are you going to get them sick are they going to get you sick what is what is going on here right and um you know as it turns out we did our last performance on wednesday night and we got notified on thursday that the city had shut down all the theaters and they said we could come to the theater that day to pick up our stuff from the dressing room and you know we were supposed to close that sunday so we didn't lose too much of our run but on that sunday i got covid and i'm i'm fairly positive i got it from the sick crew member who had uh been backstage with us uh and i was in bed for 19 days with covid it was not good i mean i thankfully i wasn't as bad as the as lots of people who had to go to the hospital and or you know and obviously you know i'm still alive and there are lots of people including people that i know who actors at the time who um who got sick and died from covid but it was a it was a weird and scary and challenging uh, moment to be a performer, a live performer. And what was that process like to during the shutdown itself and kind of keeping the art alive and then kind of coming out of it and all that? Well, I mean, I, the actor's life is always like, oh, shoot, uh, I got to get the next job, right? I'm in the middle of doing a show now. And it's like, oh, I got to get the next job. Um, or, okay, I have the next job, but I don't have the one after that. Uh, and there was something, there was some great release of like going like, okay, well, there are no jobs to be gotten. So I get to be on vacation, right? I get to be, my daughter was a year away from going to college. So it was like, okay, great. I get to spend all this time with my daughter and my wife. And, um, and I know I'm not going to get, you know, pretty soon my daughter will be gone and I'll get to see her once in a while as opposed to every day. And so it was a great opportunity to have a lot of family time, but also I had just done um, a second or third workshop of prayer for the French Republic. And a couple of weeks into, I guess actually about two, two days after I was recovered from COVID, the beginning of April, uh, I got a call from my agent and I'm like, why is my agent calling me? The business is totally shut down. And she called to say that I had got the offer to do prayer for the French Republic at Manhattan Theater Club off Broadway. And, you know, whenever, whenever this shutdown ended, that's when we'd be, you know, they thought, oh, we're going to do another workshop in July. We'll be back and we'll rehearse it in September. This was 2020 and we'll run till Christmas. So I was pretty like, okay, great. I got a job as soon as it's over and, um, and I get to spend this time with my family. And then, you know, a month later, uh, Manhattan Theater Club call. They're like, yeah, we're not going to do the workshop in July, but we're still on track to rehearse in September. And then a month later, they're like, okay. You know, and at this point, nobody knew when the, the shutdown was going to end. They're like, okay, we're not doing the show in 2020, but we still want to do it. And so whenever theater is back, we'll do it. So, I mean, um, so actually that I, I had the comfort of knowing that I was going to have a great job to come back to. And in the meantime, there was nothing I could do. So I did actually spend a lot of time during, in that window of time uh, working on this one man uh, play that I was writing with uh, Willie Holtzman, the playwright Willie Holtzman, and which we've got 
we ended up getting to do uh, once the uh, shutdown ended. Uh, so this play that I've been, I'm not, I'm not a playwright, you know, I've always wanted to, we, we'd been working on the play for a few years and usually it would be like, okay, yeah, I'm doing a show now. When it's over, let's get together. We'll, we'll look at the play. And so that was a very slow moving bus that finally got kicked into high gear. And it's like, there's nothing else to do. So let's really sit down and write this play. And so I was able to accomplish that. That was my one great accomplishment. I know friends who learned German. There are people who, you know, who, who tended a great garden. There are people who emptied out their, you know, cleaned out their garages, that kind of stuff. Or people, or there, I mean, there are people who obviously were doing serious things and saving people's lives. The best I could say was that I, I, I was able to finish my one show. <laughs> and I'd love to ask more about Prayer for the French Republic, which I was lucky enough to see, and it was such a beautiful production. And it felt from watching it like that was one of the ones where the stars aligned, and it was just perfect. Yeah, definitely, play. yeah, definitely. It was really, I mean, Josh, when I read Josh's play the first time, I, I was involved with the play from its very first reading. Manhattan Theatre Club had commissioned Josh to write it, and he finally said to me one day, he's like, you know what? I have a list of Jewish actors I want to work with and you and you were on it. I asked him how, like how I, how he, you know, basically he cast the first reading and I was in it and I said, what am I doing here? He's like, well, you know, I have this list of Jewish actors I've always wanted to work with and you're one. So I was like, well, thank you very much because I love that play. And I, when I read that play, I knew like, oh, this is like the last, I felt like the last time I'd read it, play as brilliant was when I read Angels in America so um I was so excited to be part of it and we got to work on that over the course of a number of years in development and then yeah and there were a lot of people who had been with it in the same way that uh, every almost everybody had been with Indecent from the very beginning um a lot of people had been with it from early on or, or almost the very beginning um which really helped us make a family uh you know it's an epic story but it's also a family story and i think we all grew together with it and um and that really helped make the stars align for that and i think we all also you know when we performed it it was during the omicron crisis right and i think there was a real sense of like okay we want to do this show so much we will do everything to make sure that we're not going to get sick and we're not, you know, nobody's going to get COVID and we're going to be able to perform the show. And, and to everybody's credit, nobody missed a performance. Mm. And, um, you know, we were wearing masks backstage until we'd go on stage. There was one time when Nancy Robinette forgot to take her mask off. She walked on stage <laughs> next to me and you could see her, you know, her character didn't had like the eighth line of the scene. And you like about three lines into the scene, you saw her just sort of, slowly raise her her to take her mask off as as discreetly as she could but um we were determined to to um to do honor to josh's play by 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 killing it and by by being able to do it every night because uh, i think we all knew how special it was and how much for, for, for many of the people in the cast it was their first show back it was the first play they had done in almost two years and so we really wanted to make it work. And I know you're not um, continuing with the play to its current Broadway production, but what do you think made it so relevant in 2022 and especially now, it would feel like? Um, well, you know, I mean, I hate to say it, but um, 
you know, there's a lot of Jew hate in the world right now that's been stirred up, I think, thanks to, um, no thanks to Donald Trump um, and other people. But um, I think it really uh, articulated the fears and the struggles of the Jewish, of what you do when you're a Jew living in a world where you don't know why people are hating you or you do know why people are hating you and you can't do anything to stop it. Um, and so I think that's one of the, I mean, especially in this city, which has one of the largest Jewish populations in the world, I think people responded to the way Josh put his finger on the pulse of that, um, that made it really special. And, but also I think for people who are not Jewish to, to you know, there, there are lots of communities especially in these last bunch of years that are that are sort of being targeted lots of minority communities that are being targeted by the purported majority of whatever country or place they're in and um and that sense of both outrage and confusion and wanting to assimilate so that you're not hated or wanted to stand up for what you are um uh, resonate in a way in, in a way that's all too important to to tell stories like that now but also that's all too heartbreaking to know that you have to be telling stories like that and I know the play you're working on now deals with Jewish themes as well our class and for those who don't know about it what is this play about and what has the process been like with it Our, our class is a Polish play written by a man named Tadeusz Slobojanic and it was a, an award-winning play uh, that was first done in Poland and it's been translated into English. Um, and it's about a group of 10 kids, classmates, uh, five Catholic, five Jewish in a little village in Poland. And you meet them when they're kids and you follow them through 70, through their lives from 1930 to uh, where the last one dies in 2003. And um so you watch them go from being these little kids who have crushes on each other and have fun and play, play soccer. And, you know, you see the kind of slow bubbling uh, divisions that that come to the fore as this first the Soviets take over the village, that part of Poland, and then the Nazis do. And, you know, horrible. It's like, it's about how horrible things happen and how people deal with that or or participate in it or survive it and so you watch these kids who are friends marry each other and have children or and, and then uh you know rape each other and kill each other and torture each other and tr and then the ones who survive how they come to terms with what they did or didn't do how they fought back how they how they um, make sense of some of the horror. I mean, in, in part, it's about how uh, circumstances make human people do inhumane things, right? Lose their humanity. And um, it's really, it's a really interesting, really powerful play. It's based on some uh, true events that happened in this village uh, during the war. And um, and it's directed by Igor Goliak, who is a Ukrainian, and he brings this kind of really playful, really theatrical 
uh, lens through which we're seeing what is in in to a greater extent a Holocaust story, right? And um, so it's a the the events a lot of the events that take place are 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 difficult and and dark, but a lot of the way that the play is performed is really fun and playful and lively. And so I mean I think Igor said on has said on a number of occasions I want to tell a story it, I don't want this just to be another holocaust play right I don't want this just to be another story about how um how these tragic events happened right and and because of that the way and I've done a lot of holocaust plays in my time I mean I've you know I've done the gray zone where by Tim Blake Nelson where you know it's the stories about what happens inside a concentration camp and how these Jews who have to work for the Nazis end up plotting to try to blow up the camp and I've done indecent which is you know its own way of telling the holocaust story and I've done uh, you know prayer for the French Republic which you know I mean there I've done a lot of of plays that that use the Holocaust to tell to as a as a you know a cautionary tale for our times. And um Igor is really intent on making it a different kind of experience and in a and in a I mean it's weird to say fun and playful um in the same breath as Holocaust play. Uh and um but I think he that's one of the exciting things. And, you know, we just did our first run through yesterday and I was like, oh, oh, I, I see what we might be able to make in a way that's going to, that, that is going to be really thrilling to, to watch and, and really fun to do. Um, even as it's intense and even as the kind of thing of like, yeah, after you do a performance, you're like, okay, I just need, I either need to drink or I need to, I need to rinse it. I, you know, I need to jump in a lake, something, right. I need something to, to, uh, to, um, cleanse myself of the things that you have to live through when you're when you act in one of these kinds of plays right well i'm looking forward to seeing it it sounds interesting it's really it's really interesting i think it'd be a really exciting piece of theater and in terms of a future role that you might do is there a specific play that you would want to tackle or a specific playwright you would want to work with um well, you know, I mean, there's like, there's fantasy roles that, that I hope I get to play. I mean, I want to play Iago. I want to play Shylock. I want to play Willie Loman. Right. Um, um, and, um, you know, and then there are, yeah, there are playwrights that I, I, have worked with that I want to get to work with again. I mean, I want to work with Tony Kushner again. I hope that Tony will write more plays instead of just fabulous movies. Uh, <laughs> and um, and there are other playwrights that I, you know, I, I I I want to work with Paula again. I want to work with Josh again. There and there are great directors that I want to work with again and actors. Um, but I I, I guess. Um, there are plays yet to be written. I mean, I said to Josh when, uh, after we finished prayer, I said, you know, uh, I, I want you to, I want you to write a play for me. Uh, you, you, and, um, and I hope he does. Josh, if you're listening to this, get to work. <laughs> um, but, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, it's weird, you know, as an actor, you're almost always feeling like, well, I don't, let's see what's out there that I connect to, as opposed to let's be part of making a thing happen, um, you know, originating a thing. And so I'm mostly, I'm, I've, I've spent a lot of my career just going, okay, reading this going, oh yeah, this, I want to be part of this. Um, so so I think aside from those roles that I can think of, like those classic roles that I thought of right off the bat, uh, I mostly just am hopeful that some of the great people who are writing that I've never worked with, that I get to write work with, and some of the people that I've gotten to work with who I know that I respond to how they write or how they direct, um, I look forward to continuing those collaborations. Right. And the final question I'd love to ask you is with such a wonderful career, what advice would you give to someone just starting out as an actor? Um, it's a marathon. It's not a sprint. Um, learn every single thing you can from every single person that you work with, right? There are people who, if you pay attention to what they're doing, will make you a better person and a better actor and a better collaborator and a better teammate and um, never miss a chance to see great performances, you know, find a way. I mean, I spent, it, it, in my early days, I did a lot of second acting of shows on Broadway that I couldn't afford to see, but I could I could afford to sneak in the second act. <laughs> I don't know if you can do that as easily anymore. Maybe you can't, <laughs> you know, see everything you can, uh, especially by the people who inspire you. And, um, and I don't know, I'll say that, I'll say that, I know that I got to be a better actor once I had a kid, once I was a father. And there's something about the depth of my work that changed and that and the way that I worked that changed from having a child. And so I would just say to people, whatever their version is of of this the way the circumstances in their life changing or the way they're growing as a person that allows them to not to, to to challenge themselves to be better than they are today, right? I challenge myself every time I can to be better than the last time. Um, to be open, to be open to that and to be willing to, to challenge yourself to do that, to become uh, better. That, how about, how about that? Is that, is that the... <laughs> As, as, as a young person yourself, do you feel like that that might be vaguely useful? <laughs> yes, definitely. definitely. Well, thank you so much for doing this. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. It's been great talking to you too. Have a great, have a great rest of your day. You Listeners, thank you for tuning in. Remember to buy your tickets to our class and remember to come back next time when I will be joined by Tony winning Broadway and music legend Melba Moore. Melba Moore will be appearing at 54 Below on March 15th and 16th with her new show, From Broadway with Love. And before that, she will join me on Backstage Babble to discuss her theater career, including her appearances in Pearly, Hair, Timbuktu, Les Miserables, Brooklyn, and Innocent Black. You won't want to miss that episode, so make sure to tune back in for that, and thanks for listening.